Open up your Bibles this morning. We're going to go to 1 Thessalonians. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the text here, so I'm going to just remind us of some places we've been as we get back to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 3 this morning, and we're going to cover a number of verses, so we don't want to take too much time before we jump in. Paul is writing his letter to the Thessalonian believers, and you recall that he had to leave Thessalonica because of some pressure. They thought it best that he move on, and so he did move on. And the impetus for writing the letter was his concern for the Thessalonian believers. He was wondering whether they, uh, how they were coming on, how things were going with them, and whether the, the gospel flame that had been lit took root and began to burn brighter and brighter, or whether things came along that snuffed it out. As we'll find out in the text this morning, he was particularly concerned because he knew that they were facing some of the same pressures that he had faced when he was there. Those pressures didn't go away just because Paul left. And he finally sent Timothy there. This is things we talked about as we opened up the book. He sent Timothy there, and Timothy brought back a report, and out of that report, Paul wrote this letter. So far, we've had a pretty long introduction because Paul has taken time to... uh, acknowledge the report that he received back and acknowledge that good things were happening there and that he was delighted about that and that he was thanking God about that and he took the opportunity to illustrate what happens when the gospel comes and, and how they in fact brought the gospel to, the, to Thessalonica and how these believers began to turn away from idols and began to turn to God and serve him, the living God, and prepare themselves to wait for the return of Christ. And Paul returns, and at the end of chapter 2, he's returning to the fact that he really himself wanted to come see them, but as of yet has not been able to. And as he's expressing that, he's talking now about why he came to the place where he finally said, I can't stand it anymore. I have to send someone back to Thessalonica and find out how they're doing. Read with me now, Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to read, as it turns out, the entire chapter. There's 13 verses. And there's more verses than I typically cover, so I'm hoping that we can make it through there. But again, there's some things there, there's some chunks there that are things that we've already talked about. Verse 1, chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians. Pay attention to the Word of God this morning. Therefore, Paul wrote, when we could bear it no longer, when we were willing to be left, sorry, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it had come to pass, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase 
and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. God, it's your word. You have inspired it. Your Holy Spirit has directed the writing of it. Your Holy Spirit has maintained it. Your Holy Spirit has preserved it for us. Your Holy Spirit makes it come alive to us as we read it this morning. I pray that you would feed us. Feed us from your word this morning. Help us to see the truth from the word. Help us to align our lives to your word. Thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that you uh, uh, give of yourself to us even in this way through the word that the Holy Spirit can utilize to cut deeply into the very recesses of our own hearts. So we ask this morning that you would teach us. We pray very clearly that the Holy Spirit be in charge of instruction, that the things from you that you would like us to know are said, and the things that are not from you, that are not what we should know, be held back, whether it's from my mouth or from any other thoughts that may come into our minds. We give you freedom this morning to have your way with us, God, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm breaking our text down this morning as we move through it into three sections. I titled the message this morning, Established, which we're going to find out very quickly why I called it this. Uh, this word shows up here, but to be established in the faith. And we're going to begin right from that very first verse, or at least the first part of that verse, because Paul is reiterating what I just said before. He said, we were worried about you, and we were concerned about you, and we weren't sure what was going to happen with you. We left pretty early. We weren't able to be with you very long, and we could not stand it finally to find out what has happened to these people who confessed their faith in Jesus Christ, and then we had to leave. So therefore, we could bear it when we could bear it no longer. He says, we sent Timothy to you. But what I want to get us to this morning is that the, in verse 2 there and into 3 there, he says the reason for why, and that's the reason we want, to, we want to spend our time focused on this morning, the reason why we sent Timothy to you. It's not just so that we could find out and make sure that, well, hopefully we did a good job and they're going to give us a good report. You know, these days, anytime you buy anything, anytime you interact with anybody anywhere, it's part of good customer service, right? You, get a, you almost always get a survey followed up and says, were you happy with our care? Did you like what was going on? Answer these five short questions. It's only going to take a little bit, right? But Paul is not just interested in saying, well, we want to find word back and say, well, how, how did we do? Did we present the gospel really well? Was it, was it easily heard and, and rate us from five to, or one to ten on, and that way we can come to our next town and say, look how these people rated us, right? That's not what he's interested in. He says, we sent Timothy to you so that you might be established, and we wanted, he was to exhort you in your faith so that you would not move you would not be moved by these afflictions, these pressures that were coming. That's what that word afflictions is. Thlipsis is the Greek word. These pressures that, that press in around you. We want you to know that we're aware of them and we were concerned about that. Because we, we were afraid that you might move away from your confession of faith. This word established is the Greek word sterizo. I didn't put it up on the screen. You don't need to know it necessarily. But it means, I mean, you need to know what it means. It means to be set firmly or to turn resolutely or to confirm something. Or as the word is here, to establish, to be firmly planted. It actually shows up here in verse 2. What I have on the screen here, to establish you, the very same word is going to show up in verse 13, the prayer that he prays, the benediction that he gives, as it were, that God would establish their hearts. A form of it, a related word shows up in the middle of our text in verse 7, because he says, for this reason, 
I'm sorry, in verse 8, that uh, he says, for now we live when, when if you are standing fast. That's the word stego, which is built based on the same word. When you are standing fast. So this entire text here this morning, the theme of it or the focus of it or the, 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 the thrust of it is that he wants to make sure that they are firmly planted. He wants to make sure that they are established. I can tell you as your pastor, that is the same heart that I carry for all of you. That not only is the gospel shared and the gospel received, but that your hearts and your faith and you yourself are established in that gospel. There's all kinds of things that come along. We, we bump up into them. We've had moments just in the last six months we bumped up into these, these things that come from the outside, these pressures that form. And sometimes they're something that's sort of way out there. Sometimes they're things that are very close. Sometimes they're things that are, are, are pressing or, or doubting what, what this says. Sometimes they're just events in our lives, right? There's just things that happen. Life doesn't go the way we want it to go always. I am quite certain I am 100% certain, in fact, I could go down the rows, back and forth, up and down. I could go, and I could, and I could have you think about the events of your life for the past even month, and you could come up with something that didn't go the way that you wanted it to go. Something that has not worked out or has not been working out as you wish it would have been. And Paul says, I want to make sure that you're established. I want exhortation. I want to call you near to God so that your faith not be moved in these afflictions. Now we see this was Paul's heart. This was Paul's heart, not just to, uh, not just to, to share the gospel and have it take root, but that it would, would, would be, the roots would go down deep and be established. As Luke is chronicling what Paul does in the book of Acts, let me just read a couple of verses for you because it's going to become clear that Paul was all about this kind of work. He's not going to, just going to swoop into a town, share the gospel, make a few converts, and back on he goes. He wants to make sure that it's taking root. In Acts chapter 14, verse 21, now this is when they have been at Lystra, then they move on to Derby, and it says that when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, which are the towns he had just come through, and here's what they did. In verse 22 of Acts chapter 14, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You see the heart of what Paul had in mind. As he traveled about, he said the gospel must be proclaimed. And that's really what First Thessalonians chapter 2 was about. The gospel must be proclaimed. It must come in such a way that people will receive it. And when that happens, you must continue to bring them to a place where they are established in the faith. They're not going to move as afflictions come. It's the same thing as Jesus was talking about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, I've taught you all these things. You hear all these things. You want to follow me? Here's all the, 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 the markers that should be said of you. You've heard it said this, but I say to you. It's not all the external stuff. It's all that's going on in here. And at the very end of that, what does Jesus say? To the person who hears my words and puts them into practice in their life, he will be like a man who builds his house on a solid foundation. I think I have them backwards. I think he actually said the other way first. Maybe he did. Maybe he said it that way. Be like a man who built his house upon the rock, and the house stands firm when the storms of life come, right? When the gale comes, when the wind blows, when the, when the waters rise. But the man who hears these words and does not obey them is like a foolish man who puts his house on sand. And when the waters rise and the winds come, that house will collapse. 
He actually had already said the same thing earlier in his parable of the, of the soil, right? The seed goes out, the root, the seed, the, sometimes it takes root, some of it falls on hard ground, some of it falls on rocky ground, some of it falls on, on the weedy ground. And in all that, he's trying to get us to see that things come and they snatch away what the seed is, what the Word of God, what the gospel is. But it's that good soil that the seed goes down deep and the roots go down deep and it produces a harvest. Paul is concerned about that. We should be concerned about that. Did you notice that even in the Acts verses, that one of the things that Paul was exhorting them with, he was, it sounds weird to say it this way, he was encouraging them with this. But one of the things he was encouraging them with was the reality that we come into the kingdom of God through much suffering, through much tribulation, through much hardship. This was Paul's concern as he wrote to the Thessalonians. I'm worried that the pressures that came moved you from your confession of faith. And we are immediately faced with a dilemma because it's very clear from Scripture that when we are followers of Jesus, that we are going to face tribulation. We're going to face pressures. We're going to face difficulties. We're going to face afflictions. I say this because that's what Jesus said. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 20, he said, remember the words that I've spoken to you. The servant is not greater than the master, which means his application of that is, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Peter agreed with Jesus, and as he's trying to tell us that we're to follow Jesus in all ways, he said, even included in suffering. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, he says, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Of course, Paul, we read in these verses, was concerned about it, but he also instructed Timothy personally. As he wrote his letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says this, Therefore, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Without a doubt, brothers and sisters, despite all the things that people might like to try to reassure us with, us, with, reassure us with these days, Without a doubt, Scripture very clearly tells us, I wish I could paint this in some better light. I wish I could make it more palatable to you. I wish I could tell you words that are far more exciting to hear. But without a doubt, Scripture is very clear that if we're to follow Jesus, we're going to experience pressure and suffering and persecution and tribulation. Those things are going to happen. Now, without a doubt, you could say that they're going to happen just because we live in a sin-stained world and sin produces broken relationships and hurt. But it goes even beyond that because Jesus said it himself. If they're going to go after the, the Son of God himself, they're going to come after the captain of our salvation. They're going to come after those that follow after him. They're going to we have an enemy, and the enemy has a desire to kill and to maim and to destroy. He has a desire to, to, to take away from life, even though Jesus wants to give you life. So if that's true, then those that want to follow after Jesus are going to face affliction. Even though it's so easy for us who are believers to fall in the same trap as the rest of the world, that when difficult things happen, that we cry out, why me? Right? It's so easy for us to do that because that's what's normal. That's what our flesh does. Why me? Why, why, why am I the one that has to deal with this? According to Scripture, I just read you three verses that make it absolutely clear that for a believer, those words shouldn't be coming out of our mouths. 
Because we understand that Jesus gave us an example that we follow. His example was to walk through suffering, and we follow him in all of his ways, which means we experience suffering with him. And suffering, as we are aware of from our letter this morning, from the, from the text this morning, suffering has the possibility of moving us from our confession of faith, doesn't it? It has the possibility of getting us to swerve or to give up or to be moved off of our confession of faith. It's exactly what Paul is concerned about. But I want you to see this morning, I want you to put on your eyes of faith. I want you to reach down into your heart that may be frail and weak, that your confession that you've made that may be Who knows what it's like this morning? But I want you to, with your eyes of faith, to receive this morning the same words that I give you with the same sureness that I gave to you that we will face suffering and affliction and persecution and difficulty in this life. I want you to also, with the same sureness, receive the next three verses that I'm going to share with you. Because the Bible is also clear that afflictions do not have to move us from our faith. They actually can establish us in our faith. James says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces, look at that word, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It brings about this quality of being established that Paul, and not just Paul, but all of Scripture, because God is interested in that quality of our faith. Steadfastness, endurance. When Paul wrote to the Romans, I'm going to flip there because I'm going to read more verses than I'm going to put on the screen. In Romans chapter 5, he opens it with these glorious words. Hear them, church. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. These are wonderful words, right? There's reason for us to rejoice. Every one of us should read that and be like, yes, by faith we've been justified. We have access to God. We have hope. This is amazing. And then he turns right around and says, we rejoice in that, but not only that, we rejoice in what? We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, our afflictions and our pressures and our our difficulties, they can move us, but they can also make us more planted. They can also make us more steadfast. They can also do these kinds of things in us. Again, going back to Peter, because Peter talked about this. This is what 1 Peter is largely about. If you have not read 1 Peter with this lens on, you should. It's about suffering. And at the end of that letter, he says, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore Confirm, strengthen, and what's that next word? And establish you. Can you receive by faith this morning, brothers and sisters, that we will, we will experience trouble in this world as followers of Christ. We will have pressures and we'll have trials and tribulations and afflictions will come. Pressures will come. And the enemy's going to throw everything he can at us to get us to move from our confession of faith. We can receive that, we can believe that, but can you also receive by faith this morning that God can use those sufferings and afflictions and trials to not move us, but to plant us in our faith, to make the roots go down deeper, to produce good things in us, things that he wants out of us, a testimony out of us. He wants to do that, but guess what? 
All of that rests then on, but there's no other option we can come to. All of that rests on how we're going to respond to those afflictions. All that rests upon how we're going to respond to the pressures that come. Those trials that come in, in our path. Those things that don't go our way. All of the either moving or becoming more steadfast and more established is going to depend on how we respond to what God allows to happen in our life. Oh, I, I, wish, I wish I could tell you, friends, that it's easier in a different way. Oh, I know stories of your lives. I know what's happening in some of your lives right now. I know what's happening in my own life right now. You know this word preaches to me. I wish I could tell you something different. I wish I could say, believe in Jesus and your troubles go away. And you skate to eternity. But it's just not true. And Paul knows it here because he says, listen, I told you ahead of time. I told you ahead of time. So that you would know when it comes that it's going to happen. Because I want you to respond by faith and say, God, you're testing. I count it as joy because it produces steadfastness in me. I count it as something good because it produces it character and endurance and brings a hope or, and, and it solidifies my hope that someday it's not going to be like this. That if I will not deny Christ, he will not deny me. Because that's scripture too. Those who endure to the end. If we could take this motto among ourselves, brothers and sisters, it would, be, it would be so good for us that we are those who are established in affliction, not moved by affliction. You know, Peter, just before he wrote these words, do you know what he wrote to us? He wrote these words. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It is the person who does this that gets to experience verse 10 that says that after you've suffered a while, God himself will come and confirm and strengthen and establish you. It is those people. So what I'm coming to you this morning and suggesting to you is that when afflictions come, it requires humility in our part. Because in humility, we are planted deeper. In arrogance or in self-pity or in weakness, we are moved by affliction. And this is why Paul wrote this to them. Because he said, I wanted to find out so desperately. I kindly couldn't handle it. I sent Timothy because I had to know in your afflictions, were you moved or were you planted? And thankfully, by God's grace to the glory of God in verse 6, he says, but now Timothy's come back to us from you. And what did he bring? Did he bring bad news or good news? Oh, praise God, he brought good news, right? He brought good news. He said, we brought back to us good news of your faith and of your love. And he puts those words together. And friends, we find them together so often in Scripture. You have your faith and your love. You responded, he says, you responded to affliction, not by running away, not by saying, God, how could you allow this to happen? Not by saying, well, I'm going to give that up because that was, didn't work out like I thought. But you responded in faith and love. You overcame evil with good, as Paul you responded with faith and love. In fact, John picks up in his, in his epistles, he picks up on this. He said, look at what he says. He said, this is his commandment. This is what God's commandment is. What is it? Two parts. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Faith and love. Faith and love. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Oh, that your hearts would be established 
He said, I was so, Paul said, I was so glad to know that your faith and love endured and you thought good of us and you in fact want to see us just like we want to see you. We were so thankful as we received that news. In fact, look at the words he uses. He says, now we live in the midst of our afflictions. Now we have life because you're standing fast in the Lord. Now we have life because you're standing fast in the Lord. Ah, in this statement here, Paul illustrates at least two principles from Scripture that I can, that I can, I can see. There's probably more than that, but at least two script, uh, principles in Scripture that I can see. One from the Old Testament, just grabbing out of the Proverbs, and he says this in Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs says, Like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Imagine what it must have done to Paul and his companions as they continue to face affliction and they're wondering, did all the work we've done, was it in vain because those people faced affliction we left? Who knows what happened? Maybe it all scattered and there's none of them left. Maybe there's nothing left of what, we, what God we thought God was starting. And to hear, no, there's a thriving group of believers whose faith has gone deeper through that affliction, whose love has grown more for each other and for those around them through this affliction. And he says, ah, it's like on a hot dry day when I'm so thirsty and I get a cold glass of water. But he also demonstrates this principle which Paul himself wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 26. He says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We're part of the body, friends. And he does something in these verses as, he apply, as I apply that to this right here that helps us see that, this, that, that this verse here is true for this body here locally. But it's also true across bodies globally. Because that's how Paul's applying it, right? He's demonstrating that he saw himself, though he was not physically the part of the Thessalonian church, he saw himself in the, as part of them. He said, when you're suffering, I'm suffering. But now that you're, I see good things happening, I'm rejoicing. I'm happy. I'm glad that things are going on. This was life, for now we live if you were standing fast in the Lord. Now let me tell you something else, brothers and sisters, this morning. As you think about the afflictions and pressures that you face in this life, as you wrestle with them, and as you decide how to respond, to them. I've already tried to illustrate to you that it is for your good if you humble yourself under what God allows to come in your life. If you will humble yourself and say, God, I am anxious about this. I am concerned about this, but I'm going to cast my anxiety and cares upon you because you care for me, and I'm going to allow you to work in me that which you want to be done. And it's for your good. It's following the path of Jesus. But what Paul is also saying, and I want you to hear this because it's also for other people's good. Notice what life comes to Paul through the steadfastness of the Thessalonians. Notice what life is breathed inside of Paul as he sees and hears of them standing firm in their faith. Notice what it does to other believers when those who say, I believe in Jesus Christ, go through difficult, terrible things and they say, yet my feet will not be moved. I am following Jesus. Notice what encouragement. I want you to see, by the way, in verse 7, as Paul is talking about this, he says, we have been comforted in our own inflictions. That word comforted is actually the word parakaleho, which I'll remind you was the very word used up front in verse 2, that he said, I sent Timothy to establish and exhort, to parakaleho your hearts. In other words, I sent Timothy that he might encourage you, but I want you to know that when he brought the report back to us, we were the ones that were encouraged. I say this line all the time. 
And you don't ever hear it because I'm usually saying it when I'm preaching in other churches and doing things like renewal meetings. I just did this last week, and it's always true. I go someplace, and I preach, and I hope I preach with passion. I hope I preach the word ac accurately, and I hope that I'm encouraging them and, and exhorting them to walk more faithfully to Jesus. And hopefully those things are happening. By God's testimony, uh, by God's grace and testimony for people, those things are happening. But I can always say with 100% sincerity that when we go to things like that, I leave encouraged and blessed by watching people respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing. I leave encouraged and blessed by seeing people's hearts turn to God and watching their commitment and saying, yes, we're going to walk through. Just this past weekend, uh, past week when I was out in Pennsylvania, I brought that to them this very popular message that we should let death work in us so that life could work in other people. I say that firmly tongue-in-cheek because that's not a popular message. In fact, I hear very few people talking about that. Because none of us want to hear that. None of us want to be told that it's God's plan that death works in you so that life can work in those people around you. Whether it's your family, your church, or the lost people you rub shoulders with. And yet, it's exactly what the Word of God says. So I came to them with this message that isn't all that fun. Because how am I going to make people feel really great about saying, you should surrender more. You should, you should humble yourself more. You should die more to yourself. You should give up more of yourself so that life can work in people around you. And yet, as people do that, as the Holy Spirit moves, then that's an encouragement to me. So, Paul is reflecting the same thing here. He says, I'm wanting you to know that life is working in me because of you standing fast. And for sure, I want you to know this morning whether you're in the middle of something now, whether you've just walked through something, whether something's coming right around the corner tomorrow, we don't know what God has in store for you. You don't know what God has in store for your life. But I want you to know that as you consider whether you're going to stay steadfast and allow that affliction to plant you deeper in the Lord or whether you're going to be moved from that as you're trying to wrestle with that, of course it's for your own benefit because if you're moved, that's not a good place to be. But I want you to also see that God uses, that's what the word martyrejo or testimony or witness actually really is. That God uses our story so powerfully that when we will stay faithful to God in the midst of trials, that people around us are A, brought to Christ and B, encouraged to remain in Christ themselves. Well, let's come to the final point we have this morning. Paul ends, which is an interesting th thing to do because it's kind of a benedictory prayer. I don't know if you noticed when we read this. It's kind of a benedictory prayer, which is usually reserved for the end of the letter. I believe Paul is doing it because I think it was actually a transition point. Believe it or not, up to this point, although we're at the end of chapter 3, to this point has been largely introduction of Paul's letter. He's been laying some things down and he's introducing, and we're going to get into the, the meat of what he wants to communicate. And I think that's why. There's a transition happening here. And to... to to prep them for that transition, he did the same thing in the book of Ephesians. If you remember, about midway through the book of Ephesians, he had this powerful prayer where he's praying that they would, would be filled with the love of God and that their roots would go down deep and those kind of things. Like they would get to know who God is uh, more deeply. So he does the same thing here. He says, may God, our God and Father himself, uh, our Lord Jesus, may he direct our way to you. May we be able to see each other. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. I'm just going to read the verses again. And for... 
then I interrupt myself. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. I'm going to break that down. I'm not going to pay much attention to the fact that he's asking that they get to see each other, but I want to come to the second and the third thing that he says there. These are transitional things, and he's introducing some things, some themes that he's going to address with the rest of his letter. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. If I could ask you, brothers and sisters, to consider thinking, as Paul prayed this prayer for the Thessalonians, this is also a very fitting and appropriate prayer for us to pray for each other. May these words find their ways past our lips in regards to each other. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. And for everyone. I just told you those two words, faith and love, go together. Of course, the primacy, the priority of love is all through the Bible, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Right? These words are to be on your lips. You're supposed to impress them upon your children. You know that. Jesus confirmed it in the New Testament. What's the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, Jesus was so bold as to say all the commands of God hang on those two. So it's a very strategic and it's a very important prayer that Paul utters for them. He says, believers, I'm praying that the Lord would make that you would increase and even abound. That word is like overflowing, like super abound. That it may overflow your love for one another and your love for everyone. It's the charge Jesus laid at the feet of the, some of the churches in, in the Revelation, right? You're doing good things, but your love has grown cold. I believe it's the thing Jesus was talking about when he said, on that day, many, many will come and say, Lord, Lord, look at all the things we did in your name. And Jesus will say, what's he going to say? I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. You see, to love is to know. That's the word Paul uses in Philippians, to know Christ Jesus, to know his sufferings and know his resurrection. To know. Oh, church, we can't move past. We want to do all kinds of things for Jesus. We want, to be, we want to be steadfast and firm, and we think sometimes that to show that means we should be doing all things, all these kind of things. And it's not that we don't want to do those things, but we must begin and put first the kingdom of God and being right with him, and that is to know him, and that is to love him. And when we love him, we will begin to love those that he has created in his image, which is these people you go to church with. And that's difficult sometimes, isn't it? You can admit that on a Sunday morning. You can look around at each other and say, you know, sometimes you're kind of difficult to love. I know we shouldn't say that out loud, right? Is it true or not? Am I difficult to love sometimes? <laughs> Ask my wife. Absolutely I am. Are you too? <laughs> Come on, church. Absolutely you are. Thanks, Brent. Brent's raising his hand back there and owning it. I pray that the Lord would make you increase and abound in love for one another and for everyone. Could these be words that we would utter and pray to God for each other? Might we dare to 
be brave enough to make this a constant prayer for us about each other. Oh, God, would you make love increase and abound in us for each other. Help us to love each other. Scripture is so clear. When we love, we give of ourselves, of our time, of our money. We don't, I don't have to preach sermons about giving and about using your talents and about being part of the body. I don't have to preach sermons on that when we love God and we love each other. It's going to happen. Nobody could stop it. I could try to stop it and it wouldn't stop. Guess what? The world could try to stop it and it won't stop. Satan could try to stop it and it won't stop because we love each other. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love. And then he connects this. I want you to see the connection. It starts with a so that. And that's the word in the Greek too. Hina. So that. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Did you catch the connection? There's a connection between loving, loving each other, and loving everyone. There's a connection there and becoming hearts that are blameless in holiness. Let's not pretend for a second that we're going to clean ourselves up and become holy in front of God in some way and skip the whole loving each other thing, which gets kind of messy. It's not going to work. May he make our, our increase and abound in love for each other and for all people so that he may establish our hearts, your hearts, he's praying for them, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father, our God and Father, at the coming of Jesus. I'm sorry, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints, if I just get it read correctly. There he prays again, because his end goal is still the same. Oh, that your hearts would be established. What's that old song we used to sing? I shall, I shall, I shall not be moved. Right? Oh. I pray that God would establish your hearts, would make so that your hearts would not be moved. Blameless in holiness before God, so that when Jesus Christ comes back, you'll be found ready for his return. Now when we read, when we read, well, let me, let me, let me pause that thought. I told you that, that this is an introduction of a couple of things that are going to be coming later uh, in the letter yet, and I just want to help you see that. He talked about loving talked about hearts being established in holiness, and he talked about the return of Christ. And those are themes that we're going to pick up on chapter 4 and chapter 5. That's what we have left. But Paul's going to spend a lot of time working through that, loving each other, growing in our love for each other, leading holy lives, and being aware of and being ready for the return of Christ. Those are things that he's going to pick up still in verses, or chapters 4 and 5. He's opening that door. He's praying. That's, I think it's why he's praying. He's saying, I'm, going to, I'm about to say some things that you need to hear, church. And I'm praying that God would be active and working. For in the end, it's God who does these things in us. That God would be active and working and establishing your hearts. Helping you to love each other more and more. And establishing your hearts so that you can receive what I'm about to tell you. And I can tell you with good news that when you read Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, he believes that he sees some of these things taking place. He opens that letter with these words. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 3, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Why? Because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Look at the two words he used. Abundantly and increasing. It's the same two words he used here, that the Lord may make you increase and abound in your love for one another. That your hearts be established. But that's what's coming in the Thessalonians. So I'm turning now away from these pages here, and I'm turning to us here this morning, sitting in this church building. 
I exhorted us, I encouraged us that we would grow in our love for each other. I'm asking God in the same way, benedictorily, if you can use it, that, that, that your hearts would be established, blameless in holiness before God and ready for His coming. That's all based on the premise that knowing, knowing that difficulties are going to come into your life, you're going to face things this week, and you're going to have to answer the question, will I respond in humility and become established by this affliction, or am I going to respond in selfishness or in self-pity and be moved by this affliction? Only you can answer that question, actually. Only you will answer that question. I, I, not even that you can answer the question. You will answer it. You, you, you don't have a choice. You are going to answer it with how you respond. So, this morning as we come to where we've been ending, or we've been actually saying this, maybe not ending every time, but ending. These are the last couple of, one of the last couple of verses from First Thessalonians. We've been taking it as sort of a cry, a motto, a prayer. I'm going to invite you again this morning. If you don't mind standing for a little bit, I know I tend to pray some long prayers. I'm going to invite you this morning to pray with me. I'm going to start by reading this together, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'll dismiss you at the end of that. But I want this morning, I don't know if you can do two things at once, because I want you to receive this prayer for you personally. I want you to receive it for you personally, knowing that you will face some pressure you will face some temptation to, to deny Jesus or to be unfaithful to him or something that doesn't go your way or something falls apart or something is, is bringing difficulty in your life. You'll face something that you don't, wish you wouldn't have to this week. I'm almost, I'm sure of it. So you have to make a choice what you'll do with that. And I want you to hear these words specifically for you. But at the same time, I want you to read these words with me here in a little bit and to speak them as a prayer for those standing around you so that you may also be committed in brotherhood and sisterhood to your brothers and sisters here to say I'm asking that God would be the one that's doing that work in each of you too so that each of us may come back next Sunday by God's grace and be sanctified in him to be walking fully steadfast in him established in him did you get that? You're receiving it as a prayer for yourself, but you're also praying it for everyone else in this room. So let's read through this together, and then I'm going to go right from reading it into a prayer as we close out. So read this with me. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God, you've heard us say those words this morning. And I pray that our hearts of, in hearts of humility that we receive them each ourselves. And we receive them from our brothers and sisters. And we receive them from you this morning. The reality that we want to have hearts established. So God, I pray that if there's those in here this morning that are, are walking through some difficulty, great or small, that this morning by your grace, you're the one who does this, God. This morning, by your grace, that you would give us the ability to say, oh, God, I don't know what to do, or I'm not sure. I don't like the choices, or I'm so scared of what's happening, or I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not sure how to respond, or I, I, I feel like walking away, or I, I'm so discouraged, or I'm so sad, I'm so angry. Whatever those things might be, despite whatever it's, it's drawing out of my flesh, 
Yet I will say, God, you have right to do what you want to do in my life. And I want to stay, stand steadfast and sure in the faith that you have called me. In the reality that there's nothing that can separate me from your love, God. There's no height or depth. There's no power, principality. There's no sickness. There's no, there's no, not death itself cannot separate us from your love. Oh, help me this morning, God, to receive and to feel your love, to walk in your love, to know that love. Help me this morning by words of faith to walk the path of Jesus. That though he suffered, that though he faced pressure, he faced persecution, he walked faithfully before you. He did not get upset or angry. He did not, he did not say mean things about those who were bringing difficulty in, the, in his life. But instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly, God, and that's you. Give us grace this morning to do the same thing. Oh, God, I pray that our hearts would be established before you. But we need your help to do that. We know that it is you who, who does that work in us. You can make us blameless. You can make us ready for the return of Christ. And we want to be, oh, we want to be. We want to be ready because we want Jesus to come. We want to be with him. We know that to be here in this body is to be absent from you. And we would far rather be present with you and absent from here. But God, we also give you priority. You give you sovereignty over the times of our lives, the days. You know the measure of our days. You've known them from, the, from before we even drew one breath. So we give you the right to determine when it starts and when it stops. And we plead of you, God. We plead of you for your grace as we walk through this because the pressures come and they mount and sometimes we're so weak and frail. Sometimes we walk strongly in the faith of Jesus Christ and sometimes we say, oh, I believe Jesus, but help my unbelief. I'm thankful that you're a tender shepherd, Jesus, and you come and walk closely to those who need help in their unbelief. I pray again, God. I pray that you, the God of peace, would sanctify us completely and make our whole spirit and soul and body to be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You, God, you who call us, you are faithful, and you will surely do it. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.